Today's reading is from Luke 23, verses 26 to 43, and there are Bibles underneath your seats if you need one. The Crucifixion of Jesus. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved, him, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our de deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for your people tonight. And Lord, I just pray that you would focus our hearts on Christ as we look into your word together. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us a fresh and clear vision of the cross of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that, I pray that what happens in the next half hour as we meditate and focus on these things, Lord, that it will affect all seven days of our next week. And we pray ultimately, Lord, that your son Jesus would be exalted. And in his name that I pray. Amen. All right, good evening. So we've come tonight to meditate on the crucifixion of Jesus, what I'm calling uh, history's darkest day. In our culture, we're so familiar with the image of the cross, right? We have a cross right here on the back of our stage at Cornerstone. We have 
crosses that we wear as jewelry, crosses on the backs of people's cars, these kind of things. I think that we're so familiar with what the cross is that we forget what the cross meant in the ancient world. And so from a strictly historical standpoint, I think that the cross um, is probably the greatest testament to human potential for cruelty and inhumanity towards one another. On a, on, there's many aspects to what the cross was in the ancient world. On the one hand, from the physical side, the cross is a very, very torturous form of execution. Um, the process that happened in crucifixion before someone was crucified, whatever criminal it was who was condemned to death by crucifixion, would first be beaten terribly. Then they would have to carry their own crossbeam to the side of their execution, at which point they would be, their arms would be fastened to their crossbeam, whether by ropes or, in the case of Jesus, by nails. And then their crossbeam would be affixed to a vertical stake in the ground where they would be suspended in the air until they died. usually took days for someone to die by means of crucifixion. I'm not entirely sure how, but we think it was probably because of eventual suffocation once somebody's body became exhausted to the point they could no longer fight for breath. It's the physical element of what crucifixion was in the ancient world. There was a political element to what crucifixion was in the ancient world. This is, um, crucifixions happened in public places. Crucifixions typically happened by major roads, and the idea was that a lot of people would see it. This was supposed to be a deterrent for other people against this. You see somebody crucified, you know that you don't rebel against this king. Or you see a crucifixion, you know that you don't commit these violent crimes. And so there was a, there was a definite political way that these things were carried out. It was meant to be a show of force. There's a social element to what crucifixion was. Roman citizens were not executed by crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves and for violent criminals. Those were the kinds of people who were crucified. And then there's also a, there was a spiritual element of what crucifixion was in the ancient world. And that is in ancient Judaism, it was believed that anyone who was executed by crucifixion was under the curse of God. And we see this in the New Testament as well. This comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21. So we see all these things about this is what crucifixion was in the ancient world. However, there were many crucifixions that happened in the ancient world, and I'm calling this particular day that we're looking at, this of them all is the darkest day in history. And it's not just because of, the, of this form of execution, of crucifixion, it's because of the person who is being crucified. And so as we begin tonight to come to meditate on Jesus' crucifixion, I want you to start off by doing a thought experiment with me. Okay, so here's our thought experiment. First of all, imagine I have the ability to like, wipe your memory. I, I don't but imagine that I do, okay? And so I've wiped your memory clean. And then imagine the second part, this is the part of the thought experiment that I like the most, is I have a time machine. Okay, so you have a wiped memory, you get into my time machine, and I take you back to somewhere around 30 AD to the day of Jesus' crucifixion. And you, with no memory, having not read the Bible, you are a witness to the historical crucifixion of Jesus, what, like, what would you think it was? What would you think happened that day? Like, what, what would you understand about what was going on? Well, you would understand that this was a very brutal execution. You might talk to some bystanders and figure out that there was a, a deal of controversy around this person who was being crucified. 
you could put a few details together, but what you couldn't put together was what the crucifixion of this man meant. Who was he and what was he accomplishing in this? So this is why we actually stand in a better position today as readers of the Bible than we would have spent if we could have been in Jerusalem on that day. So what we want to do is we want to look and see what does Luke tell us about Jesus' crucifixion that tells us how we can understand not only what happened, but what it means and what its significance is for us. So we're going we're gonna to walk through the story together, and our framing question is, um, who do we see at the epicenter of history's darkest day? Who do we see at the epicenter? And we're going to kind of do this in two parts. We're going to spend most of our time tonight, we're just going to walk through this story step by step. We're just going to walk through it verse by verse together, and then kind of at the end, we'll pull back, and we'll, ha- we'll get some big picture points of who, we, who is it that we see at the epicenter of history's darkest day. So as we come into the text, um, we, we know from uh, what we've been reading that Jesus has been falsely accused, and he's been condemned to death to be executed by means of crucifixion. And in fact, the crowd even demanded a, a notorious murderer in his place um, instead. And so Jesus is, is condemned and the wicked man is freed. And so now we come, um, we come to, to hear of Jesus' crucifixion now. And so we're going to kind of look at this. I, I've broken up the story into what I'm calling three acts. And so act one is Jesus on the way to the cross. And verse 26 says, As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So the fact, what does this tell us, the fact that someone else is carrying Jesus' cross? This is telling us that the beating that Jesus has taken is severe enough that he can't carry his own crossbeam. And so it's laid on this passerby, Simon of Cyrene. And then we read this scene in verse 27. It says that a large number of people followed him, and it focuses in on this group of women who are mourning over Jesus as he's on his way to the cross. And it it even literally says that they're like, it says that they're beating themselves. What this means is they're like beating their chest, mourning loudly. This is quite a scene as they're following Jesus on his way to the cross. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus turns to them and he says, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And then he goes on to talk about this coming destruction that's going to come on the city of Jerusalem. He specifically addresses them as the daughters of Jerusalem. And he says that this, this destruction is going to come on the city of Jerusalem. And this is going to be such a terrible time that it would be better in those days to not have children. So typically, like in our world, if someone, like a couple has a new baby, what do, you, what do you say to them? You say, congratulations. If you were to find out that someone that you knew and loved maybe struggled with something like infertility or had had a miscarriage or something of that nature, what would you say to that person? I'm so sorry. What Jesus is saying is that the time that's going to come on the seat of Jerusalem is going to be so awful, that's going to get turned on its head. It would be better in those days to not have children so as to not have to see them go through the suffering that they would have to go through. And then he goes on and he gives a quotation from the book of Hosea, which is basically saying that whenever God's judgment falls on his people, it's going to be so terrible that the people are going to pray to the mountains to fall on them. 
So typically, no matter how bad things get, we would say that life is always preferable to death. What Jesus is saying is that this day is going to be so terrible, it would be better if the mountains fell on you and killed you than to have to endure those days. And then Jesus uses this proverb where he says, if they do this while the wood is green, then what will they do? What will happen whenever the wood is dry? Jesus is talking about that apparently this judgment that's to come, that's to fall, in some way is more terrible than than even this day. Jesus' crucifixion is the day that the green wood burns. And Jesus is saying, there's coming a day where there's going to be something more terrible and more awful than that. And so he tells them, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And I think we do see a note of compassion in Jesus here. I mean, consider, consider what, he, what he's going to, right? And yet, what is on Jesus' mind? What's on Jesus' mind is what's going to happen to the city that he loves and to these people that he loves. And so what does he do? He turns the attention away from himself, and then he, he takes on the role of the prophet, He takes on the role of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. If you remember, whenever Jesus came into Jerusalem about a week before this, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over it, thinking about the destruction that was going to come. So we see him now in compassion turn to these women and warn them to prepare themselves for the day of coming judgment. And so we see Jesus' compassion on this. And so this is what we see happens on on the way to the cross. The next thing that we see is we see the setting. We see the setting of what happens at the cross itself. So the setting at the cross. And this picks, us, this picks up in verse 32. It says that two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals one on his right and one on his left. So Luke wants to make sure that you get that whenever Jesus is being crucified, he's being crucified directly in the middle of condemned criminals. Okay, And I think think what Luke is trying to do, I think Luke is wanting to trigger certain Old Testament passages for us. He's wanting to make sure that we don't miss things. And I think what he doesn't want us to miss here is, uh, is what goes on in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a really famous passage about the suffering servant of the Lord who makes atonement for the sins of the people and who was eventually raised from the dead. And so notice what it says in Isaiah 53. It says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was what? was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted among transgressors. Then it says, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So we see Jesus here among sinners at his crucifixion. We get another detail here. It tells us that the soldiers, what are they doing with Jesus' clothes? They're essentially dividing uh, dividing up his clothes like the spoils of war in a way, and they're actually gambling for his clothes to see who's gonna get, you know, which ones of Jesus's garments. And I think this is an Old Testament reference as well. Psalm 22, which talks about the sufferings of David and also about the son of David who's to come, the Messiah who will come in the future, says they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for for my garment. If you wanna know more about how the Old Testament actually does predict a suffering and rising Messiah, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 are like the place to go. So if you're looking for something from the Old Testament to meditate on for Easter, 
Like, those are, great, those are great texts to go to. And I think that Luke wants us to be thinking about these. And why is this important? Why is it important that we catch these Old Testament references? It shows that the crucifixion of Jesus is not the greatest accident in history. The crucifixion of Jesus is not plan B. It's been planned for centuries before and even before the creation of the world itself. The book of 1 Peter says that Jesus' crucifixion was foreordained by God. This is, this is plan A. This is the culmination of all of history and of all, of all that the scriptures are looking towards. So this is kind of the setting at the cross. Now, I want to I take a brief aside right now um, to talk about one thing that's going on in verse 34. You might, not, you might not notice these things. You might notice these things and they trouble you. So I thought it would be good for us to go ahead and talk about it. In verse 34, do any of you see a footnote in your Bible that goes with verse 34? And if you do, would you read it for me? Shirley. Okay. And the sentence is Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Okay, and so you have this footnote in your English translations. Your translator has let you know there's some early manuscripts that don't have this sentence. They don't have this prayer from Jesus. And so I thought it would be good for us just to talk about that. Like, how do you process that? How do you process the fact? Because if you start paying attention, you'll see some of these notes from time to time. So how do we process... Oh, we'll come back to that in a second. How do, how do we process what it means whenever we actually see biblical manuscripts that don't all read the same thing? So whenever you read like your, your, English, your English Bible, particularly your English New Testament, there's not one single manuscript that it's based off of. We actually have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. And what we're able to do is compare, compare the best of those manuscripts against one another to determine what the earliest reading is. And sometimes those readings, um, sometimes there are disagreements between the manuscripts. I want to be the person who tells you about those things. I want you to hear it from me and not from somebody on uh, the History Channel, something like that. Okay, so what this leads to within, within biblical scholarship, this is the field of what's called uh, textual criticism. These are people who study ancient biblical manuscripts. And I just have collected a couple of thoughts, um, or three thoughts, on just kind of guiding you on how to deal with these kinds of things, where they come up, and, and why I think they shouldn't shake your faith. Um, so I did want to show you. Um, this is one of those early manuscripts, so I thought it'd be cool for you to see it. Um, so this is a manuscript that goes by many names. Um, the Bodmer, its original name is Bodmer Papyrus 14. Its new name is Papyrus Hannah 1, and it's kind of like its nickname is P75. It's uh, Papyrus 75. And I don't know if, I don't know how well you can see it on these images, but I don't know if you can kind of see. So this is a papyrus. This is not parchment. This is not made from animal skin. This is made from papyrus reeds. You can kind of see the grooves of the reeds and how they've been overlaid to make the paper. Um, uh, on this image. So the story of this particular manuscript, this manuscript was written um, in the third century. So it was written in the 200s. It's a very, very old manuscript. Um, it was discovered in Egypt in the 1950s, was purchased by a Swiss book collector named Martin Bodmer, hence Bodmer Papyrus 14. Uh, but then ended up, uh, it's now under the care of the Vatican Library in Rome, which is where I got the color image from. This is actually the page from Luke 23. Um, and then this, this kind of black and white text selection that I have, this is actually our passage right here. 
So if you could read Greek, um, and, and this is also Greek, this is written in all capital letters, no spaces in between the words. So if you could read Greek and you could read it well enough to read it in all caps with no spaces, you would read this and you would see that this prayer is not in, it's not in there. Um, so I just, thought, I just thought I'd have a nerd moment and show you a manuscript. So here are my thoughts on textual variants in the Bible. Um, and also, just a quick caveat, I, I, I have some training in New Testament textual criticism, not much, but some basic training. I do a lot of work with the Old Testament text, uh, so that's kind of my training and the kinds of things that I work on in my research. The first thing is this, studying textual variance in the Bible is rooted in our belief that the Bible is God's word. So I just pulled our first article of faith, which is what? We believe that the entirety of the Bible is the word of God, free from error in the original words. What this is about is we have some people who feel called by God to become scholars of the Bible, and so they spend, some of those people spend their time sifting manuscripts to confirm what those original words are. This is motivated by a love for God and by a reverence for his word. The second thing that I want to make sure that you know is that large numbers of manuscripts and variations yield a more accurate understanding of the biblical text. This is maybe a little bit counterintuitive, and maybe if this doesn't make sense to you, we can have another conversation. But I know that a lot of you like work in the sciences or you work with a lot of data. Tell me this, tell me which of these is a more accurate data set? A small, simple data set, or a large data set that maybe has some problems here or there? Which, which one gives a more accurate picture of the, of, of the state of things? You want, you want a large data set. And so what we actually have, what God has supplied us with in the history of the transmission of the Bible is a super huge data set. And so th though sometimes it leads to points of confusion, like in Luke 23, 34, it actually makes us confident that we have a more accurate text of the Bible because God has supplied us with all of these readings. That's a, we can talk about that more if that does seem very counterintuitive to you. And then the other thing that I want to bring up is that some, particularly in the media, exaggerate the extent and the theological impact of textual variance for sensational effect, to sell books or to, to get high ratings on TV or something like that. So, uh, so let's take both of those. So both the theological impact of textual variance. Though we see this textual variation right here, there's, there is no version of the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus is not clearly presented as God's son, does not die for our sins, and is not raised again. And that is the case with all four Gospels. Yea, that is the case for all 66 books of the Bible. The theological impact of these textual variants is very, very small. And then the second thing is the extent of these kinds of textual variations. This is an exceptionally famous case. Um, most cases of textual variation among uh, biblical manuscripts are like spelling differences, like differences, like minor grammatical differences. If you read text critical scholarship, it's really, really boring. <laughs> so, so I say that to say that absolutely, as someone who studies these things all the time, you can absolutely be confident in the English Bible that you have in your hands. So I hope that you see this. I, I, wanted to, I wanted us to stop and take a few minutes to talk about it. I know it's taking us some time away from the text. But I wanted you to see, I wanted you to have a context to interpret these things. 
And I think there's no reason that whenever you see footnotes in your Bible about variations in manuscript, there's no, there's no reason that that should shake your faith. If anything, it should make you give thanks to God that he has supplied us with all these manuscripts. Um, and it sh- should make you thankful for Bible scholars, right? So, all right. So anyway, so sorry for that lengthy, lengthy aside, but I thought it was important, and I thought that maybe it was timely that the one week that I'm preaching, we get a text with a major textual variant. And so I, I thought maybe that God had had put it there for, for us to be able to talk about it. So thank you. Thank you for humoring me. Um, and if you'd like to talk more about this, I would obviously be really happy to. Okay, so we're back. Now we're back into the text itself, right? So now we're not talking about uh, manuscripts anymore. We're talking about the text itself. So we've seen Act 1, we've seen Jesus on the way to the cross. We've seen Act 2, we see the setting at the cross where Jesus is... Um, he's like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's counted among the transgressors. He's like... He's like the son of David in Psalm 22. They're dividing up his clothes. And then we get here to what I'm calling uh, Act 3, the earliest interpretations of Jesus' crucifixion. What did the very first people, how did they interpret what was happening with the crucifixion of Jesus? And if we think about this like a movie, think about we're about to get like four different camera shots in quick succession. We're going to get four different scenes where we get different interpretations of what's happening with Jesus' death. And so the first one uh, comes in verse 35, where we see that the rulers, these are the the Jewish rulers, what are they doing? It says says they're they're mocking him. They're mocking him, and they said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, or if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. So what is their interpretation of what's happening with Jesus' crucifixion. Their interpretation is that the crucifixion of Jesus is hard evidence that he is not the Messiah. That's their interpretation of the event. Second, second camera shot. Roman soldiers. Check this out in verse 36. It says, The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So these Roman soldiers, they come and they mock Jesus. It says they gave him wine vinegar. What's the, what's the significance of the wine vinegar? I think this is, this is coming from Psalm 69. But I think in another way as well, wine vinegar would have been like the kind of thing that poor people would have, would have been drinking. And so it's the idea, if you want to mock someone who is what you believe a pretender king, what do you do? You bring them the stuff of the peasants, right? So they're making fun of Jesus as the king while they bring him the very poorest drinks in the country. And so they mock him with this wine vinegar. And then what is their interpretation? If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They also believe that the crucifixion is direct concrete evidence that Jesus is in fact not the king of the Jews. And then we get in the middle, I say say we get four, we kind of get four camera shots. In the middle, we get this, I guess we get five camera shots. Just the third one is not to a person. It's just to a scene. We get a camera shot to, um, to the notice posted above Jesus' head, mocking him again, saying, this is the king of the Jews. And then we get scene three, where we go to one of these thieves who is crucified with Jesus. And what is his interpretation of the crucifixion of Jesus? He says, not, not save yourself. He says, save yourself and us, right? He says, if you're, aren't you the Christ? Won't you save yourself and us? But of course, he means it mocking. 
He again, same interpretation of Jesus' crucifixion. It's evidence that Jesus is in fact not the Christ, not the Messiah. But then we get this final camera shot. We go to the second thief, the second criminal who's crucified with Jesus. And what is, what is his interpretation? What's his interpretation of Jesus' death? Well, he rebukes he rebukes his colleague, right? And he says, don't, don't you fear God? He says, you and I are suffering justly. We deserve this. We have actually committed these crimes. But this man is innocent. So he recognizes Jesus' innocence. And then what does he say? This is a huge verse. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your what? In your kingdom. Who does he believe Jesus to be? Do you catch the boldness of this profession of faith that he makes where everyone else sees the crucifixion of Jesus and says, he's a sham king. And then this second thief sees the crucifixion of Jesus. He sees a suffering, innocent man. And more than that, he sees the true king and he sees that the crucifixion will not actually thwart his kingdom. He believes his kingdom will still come. Isn't this amazing? And I think this is so incredible to see you kind of are going down this ladder of hierarchy where you start with like the Jewish leaders who would have been like the religious elite. And then you go down to the Roman soldiers. And then you go down to people who apparently had done some terrible things to, to be being crucified in their own minds justly. And who is it? Who's the person who actually comes to faith in Jesus? Who's the one who cries out to him for salvation? It's the second thief. And so take heart, especially if you're someone that like, you feel like you're not part of the religious establishment or you feel like out of place at church or something like that. Know that Jesus died for you. Jesus purchased your salvation with his blood. And I think for people like me who grew up in the church, I think the people that I'm probably the most similar to are those leaders at the beginning. And to me, this is a warning for me to, to keep watch on myself. Right, to, he, to hear Jesus' prophetic words, to, to check myself and make sure that I'm really trusting in Jesus, that I'm not resting in my own self-righteousness, but that I'm trusting in him. So we see the fourth thief with his profession of faith in Jesus, and then notice Jesus' response. It says, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So you see the certainty of what Jesus says, right? He says, surely, absolutely, this is the case. And then he says, you will be with me in paradise. I think Jesus' choice of the word paradise is very intentional and it's huge here. Now to do this, we've got to zoom back. So we're at, the, we're at the end of our passage, right? We're at the end of our passage. Notice Jesus has only spoken two times in the entire passage that we've looked at. He spoke at the very beginning whenever he addressed um, the daughters of Jerusalem. And now he speaks at the very end whenever he addresses the second thief. And so if we go back to whenever Jesus addresses uh, the women in Jerusalem, he quotes Isaiah 10.8. Actually, let's see. We're not going to go there quite yet. He quotes Isaiah 10.8. This is about the mountains falling on us, the hills covering us, this kind of thing. Now, whenever uh, one biblical author quotes another biblical author, I think that they expect us to know the context. They expect us to see what's going on around it. So check this out. Check out the full verse, Hosea 
This is talking about God's coming judgment on the kingdom of Israel. And it says, The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So it gives this image of thorns and thistles coming up over the land. There's only one other time in the entire Old Testament where thorns and thistles are talked about. Can, can anyone help me out where that comes from? It comes from Genesis chapter 3. It comes from Genesis chapter 3. And in case you haven't been spending a lot of time in the book of Genesis lately, book of Genesis chapters 1 through 2 gives us a story of how God creates the heavens and the earth and then he prepares a special garden for humanity to live in his presence in. He creates Adam and Eve to live there but then what happens in Genesis chapter 3? The serpent comes in and he deceives Adam and Eve and they rebel against God and as a result of that rebellion they're, they're exiled from the garden but before they're exiled God hands out curses. This is the counterpart. Whenever God created the world, everything was created with blessings. And now all of a sudden, sin has entered the world, and now curses enter the picture. And if you remember, the final curse that's given is that the land will produce not fruit, not the fruit that, that humanity is looking for, but it will produce for them thorns and thistles. Okay, so that's, that is the language, and so this, I think, is playing into Jesus' description of the destruction that's to come. So if we think about this in Acts 1, 2, and 3, like I've laid out, at, the big, at Act 1, Jesus quotes Hosea 10 about thorns and thistles. And now all of a sudden in this verse, Jesus talks about the thief being with him in paradise. And this is what's really cool. The Greek translation of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint Guess what it calls the Garden of Eden? It calls it paradise. Do you see this? Do you see the contrast? I believe that Jesus is setting up for us a sharp, strong contrast between coming judgment in terms of the fulfillment of the curse from Genesis 3, contrasted with the kingdom of Jesus that is restoring humanity to paradise. It's bringing us back to the Garden of Eden. So in one, we have the very picture and culmination of paradise lost. And in the other, we have the picture and culmination of paradise restored. And this is what Jesus is coming to do, right? And so our kingdoms, right, our kingdoms are full of thorns and thistles. And they're leading us to this terrifying day of judgment. But what Jesus offers us in his kingdom is what we were created for. And I think it's no accident that Luke make sure that we know that the place that Jesus is crucified is called the what? It's called the skull. So why would he want us to think about the skull imagery with all these other ideas of paradise and the thorns and thistles? There was another part in those curses that God gave Adam and Eve. There was one promise of hope in there. And that was that there would be someone who would be born of a woman who would, his, his heel would be struck but he would ultimately crush the skull of the serpent. And so what I want you to see is that as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, we don't see a passive victim. We see a triumphant savior who is turning back the effects of the fall, who is bringing us back to paradise, and who is crushing the skull of the serpent. This is, this is a victorious savior, and this is indeed a reigning king. 
This is, so who do we see? We look at the epicenter of the darkest day of history, and who do we see? We see the brightness of the glory of King Jesus. And we see him bringing all things to what God has meant us to be. Now, if all this is a bit, is a bit much to you, I, I told Sarah this afternoon that I was, I was going to let my crazy show a little bit tonight. Um, and this is it. Um, if this is a bit hard to follow for you, all these things pulling back from the book of Genesis. And you wonder, Terry, what does, what does paradise mean? I think there's also a, a very clear thing that paradise means in this passage. Jesus says not only that the thief will be in paradise, but that the thief will be in paradise with whom? With Jesus. So if all these thorns and thistles and people crushing, crushing serpents' skulls is a bit difficult to follow for you, know this very clearly. Paradise is the place where Jesus is. Paradise is where we're in God's presence again. I think about, so I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a, Redneck from rural Louisiana is where I'm from. Very, very proud of where I'm from. But guess what? Like, rural Louisiana is not my home anymore. Because Sarah and Emma Isles are not in rural Louisiana. They're in Boxborough, Massachusetts. So guess, guess where home is for me? Home is in Boxborough, Mass, for me. Uh, there's a, a, a musical artist I like a lot. Her name is Brandy Carlisle, and she has a song. The, the first line of the chorus is, Wherever is your heart, I call home. This is what it means for us as, as humans, right? We were created for God's presence. Wherever he is, that's our home. And we see Jesus' kingdom is, is meant to bring us back there. So, we've seen, we've, we've walked through the story, we see the picture of Jesus here. So, how do we, how do we encounter Jesus at his crucifixion. This is kind of where we want to zoom back and think big picture. First of all, we encounter Jesus as prophet in this narrative. This brings us all the way back to the beginning whenever he speaks, he tells the women of Jerusalem, weep not for me, weep for yourselves. Though Jesus' words there are kind of focused on the destruction that's going to come on the city of Jerusalem, which did happen, by the way, it happened in the year 70. 70 AD. They have meaning and significance beyond that time, just like Jesus saw the words of Hosea to have meaning and significance beyond his own time. And in fact, that passage is quoted in Revelation to refer to a future day of judgment that is to come, a day there that is called the day of the wrath of God and of the Lamb. So know this, that the Easter season is not a season for vague sentimentality. The Easter season is a season in which Jesus turns to you and says, don't, don't weep for me. A day of judgment is coming. Take care, prepare yourself for that day. And so I would encourage you, as, as you look at Jesus on the way to his crucifixion, would you heed his prophetic call to you? And would you check your heart and see, is, is, are, there, are there areas of rebellion in my heart, that I haven't repented of, that I haven't handed over to God. And this is one of the things, whenever Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, believe that the kind of weeping that Jesus is talking about there reaches all the way back earlier in the Gospel of Luke, where we were a long, long time ago, where Jesus says that those who weep over their sins will rejoice. I think the weeping that he's talking about is the weeping of repentance, 
brokenness over our own sins and, and giving ourselves to the Lord. And so would you, would you hear that? And also, some of you might sit there and, you'd be, and be thinking that you've been a Christian for years and that you don't need to repent. Um, know this, I, I think I've always found this really helpful. I find myself always in need of, of continually coming back to repenting of my sins and again placing my faith in Jesus over and over again. I never move on from the gospel. Martin Luther, the, um, the great theologian of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote these famous 95 theses, right? The first thesis of the 95 theses was the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. So we don't, we don't move on. We don't ever reach a point in our life where we don't need to hear Jesus' prophetic voice anymore. Second, we encounter Jesus as Savior. As I said earlier, this is not, this is not a passive victim that we see. And this is part of the irony of what happens in the crucifixion is that Jesus is being mocked for not being able to save himself. But it's because, it's because of the fact that he did not save himself that he saves us, right? And so what we see is we don't see someone who's helpless who can't, who can't save themselves. We see something more like what we see in Hebrews chapter 12, which tells us that Jesus saw the joy set before him and endured the cross and despised its shame. And so we see him conquer this to become our savior. And that's how we see him here in this text. And so, and I think we also see in this reflection of what Jonathan preached on last week about the great exchange, where we see the guilt of the thieves contrasted with Jesus' innocence. And we're reminded that Jesus is here. He is, indeed, paying the penalty for our sins. He is dying in our place so that we could be offered forgiveness in a relationship with God by means of his sacrifice. And so what this calls us for, this calls us to place our faith in Jesus. And so know this, the message of Christianity is not that you need to live right to like earn a right relationship with God. Like forgiveness in a relationship with God is not a paycheck that we earn. It's, it's a gift that we receive. It's a gift that we receive freely. But notice this, it's free, but it's not cheap, is it? It's purchased with the blood of God's very own son. And so we see Jesus as our savior here. So I would just ask, have you ever placed your faith in Jesus and accepted his gift? And dear Christian, is this something that you've forgotten? I've heard uh, there's a, a pastor, I guess you've heard him plenty of times, Jonathan quotes him all the time, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, where he said, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z. So maybe take this as a time where you renew your joy in the sacrifice of Jesus and in him as your savior. We never move on from Jesus being our savior. And then finally, we see Jesus is our king. This is to borrow, uh, to borrow language from New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. The irony of the cross is that the man who is mocked as king really is king. And as king, Jesus invites us into his kingdom as we saw earlier, is everything that we hope for. It's the restoration of paradise. But he asks for our allegiance. You bow your knee to kings, you submit to them. So I would ask you this. We see that Jesus is the king. So the question that you need to meditate on tonight is, is Jesus your king? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much so much for the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Lord, even as we just enjoy just a beautiful afternoon, we're reminded that all the joys that we, that we get to enjoy in life are blood-bought. Lord, help for us to never move on from, from Jesus' crucifixion. Lord, help for us to always be amazed by the cross. And Lord, just like, just like we read tonight from Galatians 2, I pray, Lord, that as we, as we gaze and as we meditate on Jesus' cross, I pray that we would be crucified with Christ, Lord. That it would be no longer us who live, Lord, and that the life that we live, we would, we would live by faith in the Son of God. And Lord, I just pray that you would be exalted in our hearts in worship as we sing that. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.